0: It's Central Time, I'm Rob Barrett. Coming up, our guest says we can teach kids to listen with more empathy and tells us why she thinks it could be part of a civics curriculum. Now, through hiking the Ice Age Trail, all 1,200 miles of it is a feat. Doing it in winter, that's even more impressive. Emily Ford was the first woman of color documented to do just that. She's a backpacker and head gardener at Glensheen Mansion in Duluth, Minnesota. WPR talked with her while she was actually on the Ice Age Trail back in 2021. After crossing the finish line, she went on to plan and complete another winter expedition, this time in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. She was on UW Madison's campus the last few days to screen documentaries that followed both those adventures. The documentaries are called Breaking Trail and A Voice for the Wild. I talked to her yesterday here in the studio. Now, when you last talked to Wisconsin Public Radio, it was when you were still on your way uh, to completing that entire Ice Age trail uh, in the winter. Let's pick up there. What was it like to actually cross that finish line?
1: That's crazy. I think I remember my interview and I remember sitting on my backpack in the middle of the woods and being like, (laughs) I hope my service is okay. Can you (laughs) hear me all right? Uh, But it was amazing crossing the finish line. As it is for a lot of through hikers, you hit this moment of wow, I'm done, I'm so excited, and oh, boy, I'm done. Who am I? <laughs> you know, there's this mix of feeling of being excited being done and really going to miss the trail once you're back home.
0: Now, with this hike and others you've done, uh, other through hikes, uh, you've talked about your adventuring being a contribution to the racial justice movement. Can you connect the dots for people?
1: Yeah, and it, was, it wasn't really an afterthought, but it was like – it was a really good way of seeing puzzle pieces fit together of, this is how I can show up for people of color. This is how I can show up for people of color in the outdoors. This is a way that I can be my true self in um, a time when race and racism are, are really, and anti-racism are really on the tips of a lot of people's tongues. I'm not the most vocal, uh, political speaking person, but I always tell people that if I can show you what I'm doing and be a face and be a representative, and then bring it back home and talk to these you know groups of kids or just go out and do talks and talk about my um, you know, my experiences in the outdoors as a person of color. That experiential way is a way that I really love showing up.
0: Yeah, that's part of what you're doing, I think, uh, with your, your hikes and your documentaries here, of uh, being kind of an ambassador to two groups, I'm guessing, to to younger people of color and say, yeah, we can be out in the outdoors and, and to everybody else saying, hey, let's make this a welcoming place for everyone. Do I have that about right? Yeah, for sure. And having
1: it be actually really, really normal for people of color to be outside. I, w- I always like to say, like, I'm really ready for the day when. I am kind of obsolete in this, where I don't go around and talk about being a person of color in the outdoors, where Emily is old news and there's been tons of other people who have done expeditions who are people of color. I'm super excited for the day that I become obsolete and (laughs) that so many people have so many more stories to tell um, and that it's not really that the limelight is equal to when anybody else goes out and does expeditions, that they're just really cool trips people are doing and uh, that there's just a human doing it. You're like, you're also a black person. That's super awesome. But there's also a million other black people now hiking. So you're not as cool as it used to be. Those are the (laughs) days I'm really, really excited
0: for. Now, both your documentaries, you got Breaking Trail and then A Voice for the Wild. These aren't just through hikes. These are winter through hikes. I I like getting out in the winter for an hour, maybe. What is it about the winter and that long-term trip that uh, is, is an adventure for you?
1: Yeah, winter and I really started to become acquaintances more so because I get laid off in the winter for my job I'm the head gardener at Glensheen in Duluth Minnesota and in the winter oddly enough contrary to maybe popular <laughs> belief there's not much gardening to be done um, for that s- specific estate anyway in the winter time uh, so that's that's kind of how winter and I became acquaintances and I started hiking when I moved to Duluth you know a little bit longer hikes so I'd done the um, the superior hiking trail it's 360 some odd miles maybe now and you kind of get the taste of distance hiking and for lots of through hikers the thousand miles is really like your first are you going to do this or are you not going to do this and the ice age trail was kind of what the option was and then I really fell in love with like with long distance movement by my own power or plus with a dog power also
0: Now, your trip to Madison uh, that brought you into our studio here is for a voice for the wild, the uh, Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Can you talk a little bit about that trip?
1: Yeah. Oh, man. For those of you who've never been to the Boundary Waters, it it is a beautiful million acre strip of land between Minnesota and Canada. And it is a space that is wild and is wild because we protect it. Right. So there's a lot of land that is rich with resources and people have been wanting those resources for a long long time and this was again a way that I could put my my name in the hat of how do I show up for places and people that I really care about um and so yeah I got to ski across it um a 180 mile ski with my dog Diggins which people met from the Ice Age Trail and to show up in a season that people kind of Maybe forget that the Boundary Waters exist. There's a niche group of people, a lot of mushers, a lot of fishers who use the Boundary Waters in the wintertime. But for most people, they are planning their canoeing trips. And I love showing that this place that we love, that people are still working to protect, still exists in the wintertime. And it's really important that we remember this place exists in the wintertime.
0: Now, for somebody listening thinking, okay, I'd like to do a winter trek. Maybe I'm not going to go a 1,000 miles or a or 100 miles, but you know, a decent outdoor trek. What kind of things do you encourage them to do to start planning for something like that?
1: Yeah, the question is, are you going to sleep outside? You're to. you, you want to walk outside? Do you want to hike outside? Um, a few things is that people maybe, if they're really new to this, that I've been talking about a lot is your layering system for your clothes. I always like to describe it as... Um, you are you are a flaky biscuit and it's nice. You want the layers of thin clothing. So I wear a lot of wool, a lot of merino wool that I can get my little hands on. And then the, that's the biscuit part. And the warm air that's trapped in between each layer is like the delicious butter that we all love in those biscuits. And it makes for a really nice uh, A nice way to stay warm outside because one of the biggest things you don't want to be soaking wet with sweat because all of a sudden you're having such a good time hiking and enjoying the outdoors and you're, you're you're sweating and you're like how did this happen it's minus 20 outside and it just it just does happen so you know build up your layers uh you don't have to have a huge puffy coat to go hiking in the winter time um bring your water with you, treat it just like a summer hike, bring your water with you, bring food with you if you're gonna do something for long. If you're gonna go somewhere where uh, it's a little bit more remote, let people know where you're going. Also, think about how deep is the snow. Do you need a snowshoe? Go ahead and grab some snowshoes. If you've never done that before, there's tons of places around that will bring you out for snowshoe hikes. I'm sure on campus here, um, they will happily take you out snowshoeing um, around these places. And if your body doesn't quite move like that, keep poking around and you will find boardwalks that are cleared and because that's the other thing is that you don't have to go into these backcountry places to enjoy the winter and enjoy the outdoors. The biggest thing that I always say is, did you get to breathe non-recycled air today? (laughs) Did you get to breathe air that wasn't coming straight out of the tailpipe of a truck that's going by you? Can you get somewhere that is a little bit out that you can take in the air and and maybe hear a few birds or hear the cracking of the ice or hear the snow beneath your feet? That's really what it, it starts at. You don't have to be an expeditioner to enjoy the winter.
0: And do you have a next adventure in the planning stages or in the uh, dreaming stages right now? There's always
1: some, there's always something coming down the pipe. Next winter, I think I will be hiking the Superior Hiking Trail back in my hometown um, and a few other trails connect that. Maybe about 500 mile, miles total is what I'm looking for. Um, but I have to get back out to Alaska. I lived in Alaska this past winter. My partner is getting ready for Iditarod. And so we have to get the – I'm going to be out there helping getting the dogs ready for the 1,000-mile dog race. Um, From Willow to Nome. Wow. So that will be next winter. And then after that, really, the sky's the limit. You know, there's always there's always
0: an adventure on the horizon. Emily, thanks so much for sharing your adventures with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was Emily Ford, a backpacker and thru-hiker in Duluth, Minnesota. She joined me in the studio yesterday. She was on the UW-Madison campus talking about two documentaries that chronicle her expeditions, completing the Ice Age Trail and crossing the Boundary Waters during the winter. Those documentaries are called Breaking Trail and A Voice for the Wild. If you are a through hiker and or a winter hiker, love to hear about your accomplishments, let us know over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up, we'll hear a call to add a new lesson to civics classes for kids listening with empathy. That's next here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrette. You probably had some kind of civics education somewhere in your school career. You might have learned about checks and balances, elections, how a bill becomes a law. But how about listening? Our next guest says that teaching active, empathetic listening in civics classes is key to repairing our democracy, and she has research to back it up. Hillary Conklin is a professor of secondary social studies in the Department of Teacher Education at University. Uh University. She got her Ph.D. at UW-Madison. Here's a listen to our conversation. Well, before you became a professor and a researcher, you were in there, a social studies teacher in middle school and uh, high school. How does that experience in the classroom inform what you're trying to find out now?
2: Yeah, well, I think as I reflect back on my time in the classroom, a couple things stand out. So having been a classroom teacher and spending my days among over 100 adolescents uh, in one day, I think first, I have a deep appreciation for the incredible complexity of teaching and how challenging the work that teachers do is. And that complexity and those challenges have certainly only increased since I was in the classroom and particularly in these last couple years. But then I think something else that being a middle and high school social studies teacher helped me see was how incredibly thoughtful and insightful young people are If we take the time to really listen to them and give them opportunities to share their ideas about the world and their communities. So those are two big things that continue to shape the work that I do now as a researcher and also as somebody who prepares future social studies teachers.
0: Let's talk about this idea of empathetic listening. You're hoping this is part of our our schools, a part of our civics instruction in particular. What is empathetic listening?
2: Yeah, so this is something my colleague Molly Andalina and I have been thinking about a lot. And the way we're defining it is that, in essence, it's listening to connect. So it's a form of listening that allows people to connect emotionally. It's a form of listening that humanizes other people. And it's also a form of listening that enables all of us to hear more people and more voices that have been historically pushed to the margins. And we're thinking about this in particular as a practice, as you've said, as a practice for civic life. And so we're interested in cultivating empathic listening as a civic skill. And I think it's an important distinction to make that this is not the kind of listening that you might do to maybe find a flaw in somebody else's argument or to prepare for what you want to say in response. So this is not listening for debate, but it's listening to really hear and feel someone else's experience.
0: Now, before we step into the classroom, uh, let's talk about the need for us for, for this kind of thing. Uh, I guess it's an understatement to say we're not always, in our American civic life, not always so good in listening that way. Fair to say?
2: That is very fair to say.
0: Now, Project Soapbox is your civics curriculum to go into the class and work in these things. Can you spell out for us how does it work?
2: Sure. Yeah, so Project Soapbox is it's actually a pretty brief curriculum. It usually takes about one to two weeks. And it's usually implemented in either uh, social studies or sometimes even English language arts classes, typically middle or high school, though it's, it's been implemented in elementary schools as well. And it was developed by an organization, Mikva Challenge, which is based here in Chicago, and that's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. And essentially, the Project Soapbox curriculum asks students. To select what they see as the most important issue that's facing their community, develop a speech about it, and then deliver that speech to their peers. And the curriculum is actually being used in places all over the country, including in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Milwaukee.
0: When you do this with students, what kind of results do you get? What comes out of this?
2: Yeah, well, so um, I referenced before my colleague, Molly Andolina. So she's a political scientist, and she and I have actually done two studies on Project Soapbox. And so the first one was in Chicago Public Schools, and we were looking at just a little over 200 students from nine different high schools. And what we did was we talked with students, interviewed them, we observed their classrooms, we listened to a lot of their speeches. And in this first study, we were really just trying to understand what it was that students learned from taking part in the curriculum. And it's important to say that students often select speech topics that are really personally meaningful to them. And so there were topics ranging from mental health immigration policy to racism and gun violence and something that the curriculum encourages students to do is provide all kinds of different evidence for this for their topics and so many uh, among other kinds of evidence a lot of the students share personal stories that illustrate the human impact of the issue and so in this first round this first study We found that students developed all kinds of important public speaking skills, they gained confidence, and they also made a lot of gains in their expected political engagement. But what was really most interesting and surprising to us was that the greatest impact of this public speaking curriculum came from students actually listening to each other's speeches. And so that finding led us to a second study where we focused in on the listening piece. And so this time we were in a suburban school district with a much more socioeconomically and demographically diverse student population. So we had a lot more students who were speaking across lines of difference. And we found the same results as in the first study. So in both cases, when students listened to their classmates' speeches, they said, you know, I learned about all sorts of new perspectives that I hadn't heard before. I learned to really value those new perspectives. They said that they gained empathy for others' experiences. In some cases, they said they, either, they even changed their perspectives. Uh, and they also talked about deepening their sense of connection and trust with one another. And I think a final piece that's important that we found in our study that it helped us think about was that while when a, when a classroom teacher decides to implement Project Soapbox, all students in the classroom end up participating in it and giving their speeches to one another. But part of what's significant about that is that it puts students who've been often historically marginalized in the position to share their perspectives While those who have greater power in society are in the position to hear those perspectives. And giving that opportunity for all voices to be truly heard, as you may know, is not typically how things operate in our society. So that made it pretty, pretty important.
0: We're talking to Hillary Conklin from DePaul University about the value of empathetic listening in our civics education in our schools. We heard from Ted on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Ted writes, a few years ago, my wife and I went to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois. An audio exhibit on what people were saying about Lincoln, black people, and the Civil War brought me to tears, realizing we hadn't changed much in those 100-plus years. Ted goes on, if there's a way to awaken empathy in these future adults, I wholeheartedly applaud it. So on a practical level, Hillary, how do you train, say, a junior high or a high school student on empathetic listening, or or I guess a grown-up for that matter? What what kind of tips do you give them to listen in this way?
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, it's a great question. And one one thing I would suggest is that a curriculum like Project Soapbox really sets up the dynamic to enable this. And part of what we found in our research on Project Soapbox was that you definitely need to create the environment for this to happen. So a teacher needs to build trust. And so there needs to be all sorts of community building that happens in a classroom. And it needs to be a kind of community building where students get to share their values. They get to share what they care about with one another, Um, And then there needs to be a setup in the classroom so that everyone has the opportunity to share their voices, which, again, is something that Project Soapbox sets up beautifully. Another element of it is people being willing to share these personal stories, which requires getting a little bit vulnerable at times. And that's a lot of what we saw in the Project Soapbox speeches, that students were sharing things that were really personal and important to them. But it's this combination of setting up that community, the community building so that um, students feel that they can share those sorts of things with their classmates. And that then sets the stage for sort of building a greater trust in the classroom. So Project Soapbox is is one form of fostering this empathic listening. But there are also other, there are story exchanges, That there are other curricula that are implementing this kind of thing where um, students are in paired uh, exercises and they share personal stories with one another. So there, there are a range of different ways that we might approach this in the classroom. But I think the key is building that trust in the community first so that students then feel like they're in a position where they want to share these important things with one another.
0: Hillary, if there's somebody listening right now, a teacher, a parent, a student, and they're thinking, yeah, I want this in in our schools, (laughs) how could they uh, reach out uh, and give Project Soapbox or something like it a try?
2: Well, Project Soapbox is available um, through the MICFA Challenge website. Website. So, if you go to the Mikva Challenge, it's M I K V A Challenge, uh, and they have all sorts of tools to connect you to the curriculum, um, and they're they're really eager to have more folks do this do this work. Um, so that's that's one important tool. I think is is just. Um, seeing what curricula are already out there, and Project Soapbox is one great example of it.
0: Hillary, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hillary Conklin is a professor of secondary social studies in the Department of Teacher Education at DePaul University. She talked to us about teaching empathetic listening in schools as part of the civics education curriculum. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, get an up-close look at foster care. Find out how it works here in Wisconsin, then join members of Congress from both parties looking at some changes to federal foster care laws. That's tomorrow morning at 8. You could join the conversation, maybe share your own perspectives and experiences. That's tomorrow here on the Ideas Network. Liam and Emma, Noah and Olivia, William and Ava. If you've needed to come up with a name for a baby in the last couple years, there's a good chance you picked one of the six names I just listed. Those are the most popular names for newborns in the U.S., according to the most recent data. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to check out some of the biggest names in names and the trends over the years that lead names to rise and fall over time. If you have a story about your name or the one you picked recently for a newborn, we would love to hear about it. What's the name? Where did it come from? Email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Then join the conversation tomorrow. One big question. Is Robert due for a long overdue comeback? Name news you can use. This is Central Time. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferrant. Coming up, the James Webb Space Telescope took photographs of what look like galaxies that under current scientific theory shouldn't exactly exist. An astrophysicist shares those findings with us. Now, Wisconsin undergraduates in the UW System may see their first tuition increase since state lawmakers froze tuition for in-state undergrads more than a decade ago. Last week, UW System President Jay Rothman told the State Assembly's Colleges and Universities Committee that he will be asking the Board of Regents to approve a 5% increase for the next academic year. It is essential that we seek this increase for the long-term financial viability of our universities and to sustain the quality of education, research, and services that we provide. Just yesterday, Governor Evers said he would prefer the UW system get more money coming from the state as opposed to Wisconsin students and parents. His budget proposal would add more than $300 million to the UW system. Rich Kramer covers higher education for Wisconsin Public Radio. He joins us now with the latest. Rich, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be back, Rob. Can you take us back to the start of Wisconsin's in-state tuition
3: freeze? When did it begin? And why has it stuck around? This goes way back to the 2013-2015 budget. And um, the freeze was, came after Republican lawmakers became very angry and accused the UW system of raising tuition exponentially over a series of years while holding on to more than around $600 million in cash reserves from unspent tuition. Uh, The UW system said at the time um, that those reserves were not just laying around, it was dedicated to various things. But because of the, uh, the anger over that and because the Republicans held, you know, the, the, how the assembly, the Senate and the governor's, uh, seat, it led to a tuition freeze that, that continued, uh, you know, until 2021. How
0: did the UW board of regents regain the authority to uh, set tuition rates uh, for the UW system, especially when it comes to in-state undergraduates?
3: That was included in the, uh, the state budget, the 2021, 2020, uh, three well the current state budget and the um the authority so former uw system president tommy thompson essentially said that that he had to negotiate with lawmakers about finding the right balance between you know a request for additional money from the state uh and the authority to get the uh tuition freeze lifted uh and republican lawmakers at the same at the time said that you know it's been a long time this authority should go back to um the the regents but they also warned thompson that you know if you include tuition increases in your uw system budget request it won't go anywhere so he said that uh kind of casually from the from the hip uh during a, a, a forum and it really caught my attention so They've also since they've regained that authority, they haven't recommended a, a freeze since. Like this is the first time that the regents and the UW system president seem poised to to actually go forward with that.
0: And what does UW system president Jay Rothman say uh, in support of this idea of boosting the tuition
3: after so many years? Well, he says that UW system, you know, t- uh, tuition is already more affordable than most other states. Uh, or I think he said all other States in the Midwest. And he said, that'll continue to be the case even after this 5% increase. Um, So he says affordability won't be a factor. And as uh, he mentioned in the, the, the cut that you played, it's, they just have been, you know, asking for more revenue. They haven't gotten a lot of additional revenue from any one state budget. So they're looking at this as an option. And I should back up a little bit because in addition to the tuition freeze, um, there was a $250 million cut in that state budget during the Walker administration. And that led to a lot of uh, cuts that, you know, people were, they had early retirement incentives. So a lot of faculty left the UW system and some uh, UW faculty members have said uh, quality of education could be, or is being affected as a result of that. So this is uh, an attempt to try to get back some additional revenue.
0: Talking to WPR higher education reporter Rich Kramer about a proposal from the UW system president to boost tuition for in-state undergrads after a long tuition freeze. Want to check out some action from the governor and in the legislature, Rich, now a proposal uh, by a state representative looking to peg tuition increases or limit, I guess,
3: tuition increases to inflation. What are we seeing there? That bill came from uh, well, there's more lawmakers involved with it, but the the main driver behind it is Republican Assemblyman Dave Murphy. He chairs the assembly's colleges and universities committee. Um, he He's circulated that bill uh, for co-sponsors, and the memo attached to it essentially said, you know, the legislature needs to have some sort of a limit on there because they didn't they didn't want to see big increases like they had in in past years this isn't the first time there was a tuition freeze there was individual years where where freezes had taken place and then afterwards tuition rose quickly afterward Uh, and he didn't want to see that happen again but he was surprised when when uh, jay rothman mentioned this five percent increase during a committee hearing that he was chairing um, he said he didn't realize, Murphy said he didn't realize that 5% was under the current rate of inflation, which was six, 6.4% 6. this spring.
0: And then governor Evers, as I mentioned, included a boost in funding for the UW system. What, yeah. uh, what is he calling for? What's the case he's making?
3: The governor is recommending, well, there's two parts to it. So there's the operating budget. Um, and then there is the capital budget, but for the operating budget, which pays for, you know, instructional activities, he is recommending an additional 305 million dollars for the uw system that is a big increase and he said that because of that um at the time he said that tuition shouldn't have to be raised with that additional revenue the the trick is though that what the governor proposes for a budget is Mm -hmm. definitely not what winds up in the final budget once the republican controlled legislature gets done with it so um, in the past, he's recommended what they call funding the freeze. So while the freeze was still in effect, um, the governor had recommended in past budgets, big increases to kind of backfill the lost revenue from that or the projections of lost revenue. And uh, that did those sorts of funding the freeze things were pulled from the budget by, by Republicans in past years. So um, that could be also why the UW system is looking to Uh, kind of take matters into their own hands again. But I would assume that the tuition increase proposal and this additional money the governor is recommending could raise some eyebrows. It's a long and winding road to a final
0: budget, Rich. Have Republicans in the legislature given any indication on what they think of uh, the governor's proposal this time around for a boost to the UW system?
3: Well, with regard to the UW system, I haven't seen any statements, but uh, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss Republican from Rochester, uh, essentially said of the budget in, in, its, in its entirety that it's devoid from reality. So that kind of gives you a, a taste of, of what they think about it.
0: And briefly, Rich, uh, what's the next step for this in, uh, tuition increase proposal to the Board of Regents?
3: Well, it sounds like the UW Board of Regents are going to consider it and potentially approve it um, at their meeting later this month. Uh, that meeting is going to be happening at UW Stout right in my neck of the woods uh, in Menominee. So it it still could be voted down by the board, but um, generally things that are recommended by the UW system president pass the board. So we'll see. Rich, thanks for bringing us up to date. Hey, thanks for having
0: me on. That's Rich Kramer. He covers higher education for WPR. Judges for a look at proposals for funding the UW system and the possibility of the first in-state tuition increase for in-state undergrads in over a decade. Now it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with the story of a historic part of Milwaukee.
4: There's a peninsula just off Lake Michigan in Milwaukee that has lived many lives. Today, Jones Island is home to a sewage treatment plant, piles of salt, and rail cars. But it was once home to thriving communities.
5: Indian, French-Canadian, Yankee, and Polish, each utterly erased by the one that followed before today's landscape emerged. Few places in Wisconsin have seen such profound change, and fewer still have so many tales to tell.
4: Jones Island is the subject of a new Milwaukee PBS documentary by author and historian John Gerda. In People of the Port, a Jones Island documentary, Gerda talks about the Potawatomi who lived there and used the area to fish, gather wild rice, and race ponies. After the Potawatomi were displaced, European immigrants began settling down on Jones Island. As Gerda tells us, a Polish immigrant community flocked to the area drawn in for the same reasons as Jones Island's earliest settlers, which was fishing.
5: It's not a tourist attraction. Jones Island lies just blocks from downtown Milwaukee, but visitors are few. What they see is freight yards, fuel tanks, docks, the Danhoe Freeway Bridge, and the largest sewage treatment plant in Wisconsin. Here was the city's front door in the age of sail, and here is the hub of its urban infrastructure today. What it lacks in glamor, Jones Island makes up for in stories. For nearly 50 years from the 1870s to the 1920s, the peninsula was the site of a commercial fishing village settled by immigrants from the Baltic Sea coast of Poland. These kashubs, as they were called, numbered more than 1,500 by the turn of the 20th century. First in rowboats near the shore, then in motorized tugs that chugged over the horizon, they brought up 2 million pounds of fish in a typical year, including lake trout, whitefish, herring, perch, and sturgeon. Their catch was a critical source of protein for Milwaukee's growing population. Fishing also provided a livelihood for one of the most unusual urban villages in America. Jones Island was a colony of squatters who occupied their land without benefit of title. Their homes were makeshift, their street system was improvised, and their shoreline was a maze of fish sheds, boathouses, and massive wooden net drawing reels. The setting was so picturesque that artists from the mainland were among the most frequent visitors. What they found was a complete human community. Jones Island was a complex web of interrelated families who supported social clubs, a baseball team, a chorus, and a total of 11 saloons, each serving its own version of the Friday night fish fry. The Kashubs were also faithful members of St. Stanislaus Catholic Church. Whole families could be seen every Sunday morning, rowing across the Konikonik River in their finest clothes to mass on Mitchell Street. Jones Island may have been picturesque, but its days were numbered. As mainland Milwaukeeans enjoyed electricity, running water, and indoor plumbing, the Kashubs were still getting by with kerosene lamps, contaminated wells, and backyard privies. By 1910, as the city's population surged toward 400,000, there was an urgent need for two major improvements, a sewage treatment plant and an outer harbor. Jones Island was the obvious location for both. In 1914, the city condemned the fishing colony. Family by family, its residents moved to the mainland In less than a decade, the number of dwellings plunged from more than 200 to just six. Most of the holdouts lived on the riverside of the peninsula. Their unofficial mayor was Felix Strzok, a one-time fishing tug captain who had come ashore to run a weather-beaten saloon called the Old Harbor. His time was finally up in 1943, near the midpoint of World War II, when Strzok was evicted for reasons of what authorities called port security. The old fisherman moved to a new home on the south side, five months later he was dead. In a moment of inspired whimsy, the city turned the site of Captain Struck's last stand into a park and named it for the island's dominant ethnic group. Kashub's Park is the smallest in Milwaukee, about the size of a basketball court, but it occupies a unique place in the city. In the midst of today's manufactured landscape, the park is the last reminder that Jones Island was once a living, breathing human community.
4: John Gerda is an author and historian who lives in Milwaukee, He also co-created a new Milwaukee PBS documentary, People of the Port, a Jones Island documentary. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lolan Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum.
0: Coming up, we talk to a scientist whose research could change the way we think about the early development of the universe. That's next here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. The James Webb Space Telescope, which launched in December of 2021, captured some images that could shake up what we know about the earlier days of the universe. They appear to show galaxies that, at least based on some current theories, probably shouldn't exist. One of the authors of that research joins us now to help us understand what's going on. Erica Nelson is an assistant professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder. Erica, welcome to Central Time
6: hi thanks for having me I'm from Minnesota so this is very exciting one of our
0: old neighbors good to have you back well this web <laughs> telescope it's capturing a lot of images that you know of things we haven't seen before can you walk us through uh, what you spotted here and why it stood out as something weird
6: yeah it's so I mean this was definitely the most exciting discovery of my scientific career. I was, I you know, the, the data were first released um, over the summer by Joe Biden in this big press conference. And then, you know, shortly after that, we got access to all the, you know, the data behind those beautiful images. And I immediately started looking for things that were in the James Webb image that weren't in the previous Hubble image. And my eyes were immediately drawn to these objects that were red and bright and didn't exist in james webb and it turns out when my uh colleague rachel and i fit them uh one of them was this remarkably massive remarkably early galaxy and we knew immediately that it shouldn't be there
0: why shouldn't it be there
6: (laughs) well um you know the universe we think uh began with the big bang 14 billion years ago and then after that uh everything that we know had to assemble. And we think that things started assembling with first the littlest things like atoms and then gradually building stars and then eventually building little galaxies and then bigger galaxies. And so you shouldn't have really big galaxies for a really long time because they are supposed to take a long time to grow. And so these things just shouldn't be there according to our current understanding of how the universe
0: works. How sure are we that these are in fact big galaxies that we're looking at?
6: we always need confirmation. So we're, <laughs> yeah, you heard that hedge. Uh, so we are hoping to get additional data from James Webb that will definitively confirm or refute uh, the, the nature of these objects. Um, and so then we'll be able to say for sure. But the thing is, is if even one of these six objects turns out to be what we think it is. It's still a really big problem for our models of the early universe.
0: What do we have to do then uh, and and revise to understand these if if they are, as you say, big, early galaxies?
6: Well, there's some people who would say that we need to change our cosmological theory, um, which, you know, really underlies everything we think we know about the universe that we live in our origins our fate how all of the stars with all of the planets and the universe formed how you know everything um so you know that's possible um it's also possible that you know, our understanding of how dark matter aggregates in the early universe could be wrong, our understanding of how stars form in the early universe could be wrong. There's a whole host of possibilities if these things end up being right.
0: Now, one of the mind-blowing things for me as a, as a layperson is when we're capturing images of galaxies really far away from us, because, you know, the light from them is poking along at the, you know, the speed of light, it also means we're looking... <laughs> Into, into the past, like the very distant past. And I, I still have trouble wrapping my brain around that. Can, can you help me through that a little bit?
6: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've never heard um, someone describe light as poking along, but <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's great. I mean, in a cosmic sense, it is. Um, so, yeah. So, the um, you know, light, as you said, pokes along. It takes time to travel. So, you know the light from our sun which is our nearest star uh that light actually takes 8 minutes to travel from the sun to us so you know if the sun all of a sudden turned into a black hole we wouldn't know for 8 minutes cuz we're still seeing the light the seeing the sun as it was 8 minutes ago um and so if you you can take that concept and then apply it to the universe as a whole. And so things that are really far away, like these really distant galaxies, uh, it takes 13.5 billion years for that light to travel to us. So we're really looking back to the beginning of the universe, which is just a mind-blowing concept.
0: Now, one other possibility here I've seen, I think uh, you were talking about this in an interview I saw if these aren't galaxies, they could be something different, like quasars. what's that?
6: yeah, yeah. one one of these, actually, we know is a quasar. It's a baby quasar. Um, it's a cute little quasar. Um and so the it, this is weird, right? So what a quasar is is a quasar is a supermassive black hole that is eating. It's lunch. And so the you don't think of black holes as being bright. Right. Like Mm -hmm. they're black holes. They're literally called black holes. But it turns out that when they're eating, they're actually some of the brightest objects in the universe.
0: So what does it mean if we're seeing these big quasars from then instead of big galaxies from then, I guess?
6: Yeah. So it turns out that, you know, another mystery in our understanding of the universe actually is how you form supermassive black holes. So we think that there is a supermassive black hole, like, you know, a billion times the mass of our sun uh, at, you know, in the center of most galaxies. Um, And so, well, a million to a billion solar masses. But, uh, and so we think that every galaxy harbors one of these really huge black holes. And how you actually make those black holes, we don't really understand because it also doesn't seem like there's enough time in the history of the universe to form objects like that. So it would also be really exciting if a bunch of these ended up being baby quasars. We don't think that's the case for other reasons, but even having the one baby quasar is very exciting.
0: In our just last half a minute or so, years ago, I remember an astronomer told me you can divide astronomy into pre Hubble telescope and post Hubble. Is it the same kind of thing with this web telescope, the the sort of things we're seeing?
6: I think it will be. Yeah, I mean, we're only six months in to to this telescope. And already there's been just absolutely groundbreaking discoveries. And I think the the pace of discoveries is only going to accelerate as we have time to actually look at these data. And the nice thing is this thing's going to be up for 20 years. So there's so much time for people to contribute and make their own discoveries.
0: Erica, thanks so much for joining us today.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: That's Erica Nelson, assistant professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder, formerly, as we heard, of Minnesota. She talks about her research on what appear to be massive galaxies recently photographed by the James Webb Telescope and why they may change our understanding of the development of the universe in its earlier days. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, President Biden and congressional Republicans are offering their plans for future funding of Medicare. We'll find out what they have on the table and what it can mean for the future of healthcare in the United States and how we pay for it. And what are the big names of the new year? An expert on baby names joins the show for a look at some of the latest trends. And you could share your own naming decisions, maybe your difficulties, the story behind your own name. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Up next, it's news from NPR and Wisconsin Public Radio. Then an expert on the international drug trade joins us to examine the flow of fentanyl in the United States and what might be able to slow it down. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.